we're looking at the cultural mountains of influence, and we have arts and entertainment, we have media, we have religion, politics, we have education, we have family. Uh, did I leave anything out? Yeah, business? Yeah, I forgot business. And I wanted to share with you tonight kind of how this all fits in the equation. This is a fulcrum of society, and if you go here, this is left, politically speaking. Let's say this is right, politically speaking. And we look at the cultural mountains of influence. I would say arts and entertainment would be over here. That would be arts and entertainment. Way over there. Okay. Thank you. Uh, media would probably be over here. That's your news organizations. Uh, education would probably be on the left over here, education. A lot of people think business is over here to the right. Uh, so you have business, and then you have family. And uh, over here you have politics, it seems, as others somewhat of a shift in politics and then you have right here this is the way it's supposed to be this is religion and the way that the cultural mountain of, cultural mountains of influence work is that i'll give you an example calvary chapels which is what this church is started in 1967 with a guy named chuck smith and uh, chuck smith thought of a simple idea uh, john f kennedy had been shot martin luther king jr had been shot bobby kennedy would be shot uh, we we're going into vietnam there was the, uh, this, this cultural revolution, and uh, it was a hippie movement, and all these kids were taking acid and trying to find themselves and going into Eastern religions, and they had abandoned the church, and it was a postmodern culture, and the church was declining in attendance, and all these folks were just going out to find themselves. You had Woodstock and a number of other things. And Chuck and his wife Kay would go out to the beaches in Southern California. They'd see all these long-haired hippies all drugged out, and they'd be burdened for them, and they'd want to share the Lord with them. And so Chuck and Kay had a simple idea. They brought in uh, something that had really hadn't been popular in the church called syncopated rhythms, bringing in contemporary music, Maranatha music, where you get to hear the guitar and drums and acoustic, all kinds of stuff. And that was unheard of in the church. And, and they started to play this contemporary music, and it, and it had a dynamic change upon the body of Christ. And then Chuck started to teach the Bible Real simple, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And most of the folks were absolutely illiterate when it came to biblical understanding. Well, what happened was they called the Jesus Movement. And in 1967, when Chuck started in California, actually Costa Mesa, California, I want to share with you what California was like in 1967. We had the fifth largest GDP, gross domestic production. It, was the, it would have been the fifth greatest nation on the face of the earth, California. And Calvary Chapel started in California in 1967. Reagan was governor in 1967. It was the state of the future. We had low taxes. We, we, were, we had a, a water delivery system. Our, our secondary education was, was the marvel of the, of the known world. Our, our roads were resplendent. It was the place where you went to make a fortune. And I was born here in 1964. I'm a second generation, actually third generation Californian. And I witnessed this, and it was a great place to grow up. It was, it was like Shangri-La. I grew up in Coronado, California. It was beautiful. Beach community, it was, it was epic. The military was blossoming. And so Calvary Chapel started, and they experienced from 1967 to 2017, they've experienced 10,000% growth. And it's conversion growth, people coming to Christ, not transferring from other churches, but conversion growth. 1,600 churches around the world. It was one of the greatest moves in the history of, of, of the church, and in modern-day revival in a sense. 1,600 churches around the world. And the lion's share of those churches are right here in California. But one thing that Chuck did is he believed in the gospel, the gospel is this idea, it's called the good news, eulongelion, and it means good news, that God left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross to bleed and die on our behalf so that his righteousness would be put on our account. We receive that by faith, and we're saved, and it separates Christianity from every religion in the world. 
It's not what we do. It's what God's done for us, and we receive it by faith. And so Chuck preached that, and, and people started to come to Christ in droves. But the thing that Chuck stayed away from is because so many people, similar to your generation, so many people back then were, were disillusioned with politics. And so Chuck stayed away from politics. And, and he wouldn't talk about politics. And so Calvary chapels were what they call apolitical. They weren't left. They weren't right. They were just about the gospel. The most important thing to the church is preaching the gospel, getting people saved, getting people saved. And 10,000% growth, pretty epic. 1,600 churches around the world. Four of the 10 largest churches in America are Calvary chapels. We're responsible for the Harvest Crusades. Greg Laurie, he's a Calvary chapel. Uh, um, Raul Reese, Somebody Loves You Crusades, Calvary chapel. And, and like I said, the lion's share of those churches right here in California. So over 50 years of preaching the gospel, what kind of effect, a cultural effect, these seven mountains, mountains of cultural influence, what kind of an effect would a 10,000% growth of a church, 1,600 churches around the world in 50 years have on California? But they're apolitical. So here we are in 2017, and California doesn't have the fifth largest GDP. We now have the ninth. We lead the nation in gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax. We lead the nation in taxes. Another tax just went. We had the highest gasoline taxes in the country. Now we have the highest, highest gasoline taxes in the country as what happened just recently. In addition, our energy costs are 48% higher than Colorado, which is the next highest in the country. You'd think with all these taxes, they have an enormous amount of money. But no, California has the largest debt of any state in the country. You take the next four largest states' debts combined doesn't equal the debt of California. We have no infrastructure. Our roads are falling apart. At the Orville Dam on the spillway during those massive rains, enough water was going over the spillway every day to cover the water needs of Sacramento for two years. You want to talk about environmentalism and having the fish run. Had we captured that water, we would have salmon running for the next 30 years, and it's still raining up in Northern California, and it's all going out to the Pacific Ocean. Good government happens with good people. Largest debt. Now, let's see the effect Christianity's had on California. We are the state that was the author of no-fault divorce, transgender bathroom bills, and in addition, this is the state, California, leads the country in abortion. And so we look at religion, and we say, well, what role does religion have in all of this? Is religion right? Is it left? Are we supposed to be a part of this party, a part of that party? No, the idea is... If we are about, you see, in each of these, as we've been discussing in the, in, in the Beatitudes, we are the salt of the earth and we're the light of the world. If salt loses its flavor, it's cast out, trampled underfoot, good for nothing. Salt is a commodity. It's a salary. It's a currency. And in each of these cultural mountains of influence, you have a currency. In arts and entertainment, it's ticket sales. And as you saw in the, on the night we had education, it's the union. And in business, it's profit, right? And we go through each of these, and we see what the currency is. What do you think the currency in religion is? Faith? Attendance? Budgets, baptisms, buildings? What? It should be. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, there's a golden triangle that our founders had, which was called the golden triangle of freedom, and it begins with virtue, faith, 
and freedom. In 6,000 years of recorded history, the main government on the face of the earth has been a monarchy. That monarchy can be accomplished by fascism, communism, socialism. George, Orwell, 19, uh, George Orwell's 1984, everyone's equal, but some people are more equal than others. The idea is man likes to centralize power around themselves and subject other human beings to do their will. This is a constitutional republic. It's the first government on the face of the earth that says we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, among those being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And Thomas Jefferson said we hold these truths to be self-evident. That's a Jeffersonian way of saying any idiot can understand this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator. Your rights don't come from man. They come from God. Inalienable means you can't give them away and you can't take them from somebody. They're given by God. You're created in the image of God. And as we practice virtue, virtue comes by faith, and faith brings freedom. Land of the free, home of the brave, and that's the nation you live in. But with biblical illiteracy becomes the absence of virtue, because there's an absence of faith, which is an absence of freedom. You have this because you are biblically literate. And liberty and freedom are like muscles. If you don't exercise them, you lose them. And so truth is so paramount to every one of these other cultural mountains of influence because it's not about going left or right. Listen, if we go too far right on business, it's all about profit and people get messed over, right? And then, and then the environment gets depleted, right? And so if you push it too far right, it's a problem. If it's, if, if it's family and it goes too far right, if it's, if it's any of these, if it's politics too far right, we have a problem. If it goes too far left, we have problems. The idea with truth is it's to pull these other mountains into the direction of the fulcrum so that we don't fall off the cliff on either side. And that's why you've been equipped, and that's why these evenings are so vital, because you come to understand the truth, and you're able to apply that. The word Elohim is a name that's used for God in the book of Genesis. It means unified diversity or singular plurality. You know the word university? If you attend one, right? It means unified diversity. It's a combination. Diverse studies, biology, sociology, anthropology, for the unified purpose of understanding your creator, your God. And as you start to understand all these scientists, the sciences, and all these different ologies, you now understand your creator in the world in which you live, and you have an ability to seek truth. But if truth is subjective and there aren't absolutes... And I would just ask anyone who believes that, I would ask you, do you believe that absolutely? Think about that. There are absolutes, and we're governed by them. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist or an agnostic. You're bound by gravity. Right? That's why they say we hold these truths to be self-evident, things that are observed in the environment, things that are observed in your life on this earth. And then to comprehend that by contending for truth in religion, there's going to be a battle. One of the things you'll hear from Nani is this idea that <clears throat> the God of Islam is the devil of the Bible. That's heavy. Tonight, contend with that. Challenge it. Seek understanding. Gain wisdom. And I'll, I'll share this with you. 72 years ago today, 72 years ago today, a man was executed. He was hung. 
A lot of you would do really well if you read his book, Cost of Discipleship, or his Sermon on the Mount study. By the age of 24, he had a doctorate in theology at 24 years of age. Still wasn't ordained in the ministry. At 24 years of age. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was hung by Hitler on April 9th, 19, what would that make it, 72 years ago? 45? 45. We're in 2017. Work with me here. You need the arithmetic side of the ologies. He was hung by Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler would die April 30th of the same year, 21 days later. He would die in a bunker. He'd shoot Eva Braun, and then he'd shoot himself. And this was a man who was going to rule the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, being a believer in the nation that was responsible in in a large sense for the Protestant Reformation. They had presented the gospel, and within one generation, that nation was was responsible for the death of 6 million Jews and over 50 million people around the world. That nation turned. And what happened is Hitler went and he gathered all the churches together, and he said, look, I'm going to take care of your resplendent buildings, and I'm going to take care of your pensions, and I'm going to take care of all of you, and you'll have nothing to worry about, and and all of you ministers are going to be fine. And he wanted to take the Old Testament out because it glorified Jews, and he didn't want Jews in there, and they had the Aryan pact, and they wanted to remove the Old Testament. And all of a sudden, about 20% of the pastors said, no, 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 this is heresy, and they started what was called the confessing or the professing church. And so Hitler put a hit on him, Martin Niemöller and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was of, of, he was of wealth. And so he went up into the, into the Prussia region in eastern Germany, and he began to start up these seminaries, Finkenwald and a number of other seminaries that were underground. He started to teach people your age about standing for truth. And it would come at a great cost. And they started to press in on him and ready to uh, annihilate him and kill him. And he was given an opportunity to go over to England. And the man was well-traveled for, for the age that he was. He died at, what, 39 years of age. He was well-traveled. He'd been to Cuba. He'd been to Mexico. He'd been to the United States of America. He'd been to Libya. He'd been to Morocco. He'd been to Portugal. He'd been to Spain. He'd been all over the world. He'd been preaching to Germans that were in each of these enclaves. And in 1939, when it was really heating up and there was a lot of danger coming down on him, he'd been given an opportunity to come to the United States to study at the Union Seminary. And he took it. And while he was there, he started to watch Germany implode and watch the church implode. And he was so grieved by it. And he realized that the Union Theology or the Union Seminary didn't have deep theology. This man had a doctorate. He was well-educated. And this man, he, he was intense. You read his books, you'll see it. And it was a black church, Abyssinian black church, that had so moved him in, in, in the eastern seaboard of the United States of America that he came to this understanding of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he realized that he couldn't stand still in the face of evil, so he went back to Germany to stand in the midst of incarnate evil. And this pastor became a spy and put forward an assassination attempt against Adolf Hitler himself. He protected Jews, got them to Switzerland. He did everything he could to stifle the Nazi regime. And one of the last edicts as the empire of of the Third Reich was falling apart before Hitler would kill himself, kill Eva Braun and kill himself, is he said, go hang Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he hung him. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer's writings today have transformed the Christian world and has challenged the Christian world. And you sit here and you're questioning, which is a good thing to do at this stage in your life. And you've been told a lot of stuff and you're contending for truth. 
And tonight you're going to hear from me, which you just I'm just about finished. And then you're going to hear from Nani, and then you're going to hear from James Crawford. James was in your seat. James had been raised in Christian school. James had seen all the weakness of the body of Christ in Christendom. He'd gotten all of, of the cultural side of Christendom. It was nauseating to him. It wasn't until he went away to college that started to inspire him and transform him. And he looked at a lost world and he said, how can my life count? And I watched him labor. I saw him sit here on a Wednesday night. And I saw a young man who was getting ready to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. He's trying to figure all of this out. And he heard me, a pastor, pe preaching on politics. You don't do that. Certainly, you don't want to be a conspirator to an assassination. You certainly don't want to be a spy. And by God, you don't want to be in politics. And this was baffling to a millennial. But it moved him. And tonight, he's going to share his story. And then you're going to get a chance to not only ask questions of Nani, but you'll get a chance to ask questions of James. And I want you to dig deep. Don't leave here with surface answers. Go deep. I want your world to be rocked because you're the hope. This isn't, this isn't the love boat, and I'm not Captain Steubing. A lot of you guys have no idea what I just talked about. <laughs> we're, we're to push back the gates of hell and contend for truth. And I want to share with you a woman who's had death threats. She can't go anywhere without a death threat. For her to be here tonight, her life is on the line. This is an amazing woman who's about to share with you. Would you welcome my dear friend now, Nani Darwish. Come on up, dear. Well, thank you, Pastor. Thank you so much for being in your wonderful church. Um, I want to talk to you about the topic of Islam, which is a very sensitive subject in America. We're, in America, we're not used to be sensitive about discussing any ideology or, or religion. Uh, when it comes to Islam, you've noticed that it's, it makes everybody very nervous. And the reason is not because we in America are nervous about discussing Islam, but Islamic ideology actually makes it illegal to criticize or ask questions about Islam. So unlike the Bible, unlike, unlike Judaism and Christianity, I, I was born a Muslim in Cairo, Egypt. I grew up in the war zone of the Gaza Strip. And uh, growing up, I never thought a religion can be questions, questioned. And this is because we are told that we have to obey. That's it. No questioning of any ideology. It's a complete totalitarian ideology. And that's, and that's why in America, for the first time, I've seen Americans really scared to discuss an ideology, and they're actually called by the media uh, Islamophobes. Any criticism of Islam is becoming, and it's, it scares me because it reminds me of how I was when I was growing up. The West is very eager to show goodwill towards Muslims, to express values of coexistence with, with Muslims or with any other religion or ideology or nationality. But that is a biblical value. 
coexistence is a biblical value. Does coexistence, is it an Islamic value? It takes two sides to be to coexist. The, the Christianity wants to coexist with any, any other ideology in peace. Even with your enemy, Jesus said, love your enemy. So this is totally Christian. A lot of people apply Christian values to other religions or other ideologies. Under Islam, it's a totally different way of looking. There is no coexistence, replacement. Islam wants, doesn't want to coexist. Islam wants to replace. Why do you think whenever they conquer a nation, they convert whatever they have? Churches or synagogues, they convert them to mosques. They don't build next to it a mosque. They actually convert. And this has been uh, happening since uh, for 1,400 years. When they, Egypt used to be a Christian nation and a Coptic Christian nation. And now it used to be 100% Coptic Christian nation. And we have seen today that the elimination of Christians in Egypt is still going on today. And they do it every Christmas and every big holiday. There's usually a drive-by shooting, and they kill the teenagers going into a church or coming out of the church. And sometimes they go in the service and blow it up. And that's how the numbers of Christians are going down. Now they're only 10%. Why? They don't want to coexist. So this is a major difference. So the problem really when it comes to Islam is you're dealing with an ideology that prohibits any kind of analysis, questioning, or criticism of its values. And uh, in fact, if you live in the Middle East, like I did, I lived till I was 29, 30 years old when I came to America. And it was totally illegal. To, illegal. You will be as arrested in any Muslim country if you criticize a, the religion of Islam. And that's what the West doesn't understand. So the problem for the West really is a lot more than just ISIS. ISIS did not kill the Christ, Coptic Christians in Egypt today. These were Egyptian radical Islamic terrorists. They were not from Syria. They are not ISIS. So the problem is a lot more than ISIS. And so when I came to America in November of 78, I started going to a mosque because I still considered myself a Muslim. So I went to a mosque, and the first thing they told us in the sermon was, don't assimilate in America. It's against Islamic values. Don't assimilate in America. And because we're here to Islamize America. They were very happy that some people are want to run for office who are Muslims. And so it was very political. So 
I, I started discovering that the values in America, the basic values in America are totally different from what I came from. Values in a culture are the fruits that decide what kind of society you live in. So religion is one of, of the impacts of what kind of society you live in. It's the media, it's the religion, it's the arts, it's, and religion is a huge, huge part of what we, what influences what we value, what's right and wrong. So every society has a value system, and that value system is very much influenced by what kind of religion it has. It's like a measurement. Every every society has a measurement of this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong. And in Islamic culture, I discovered that these measured measurements of right and wrong are exactly opposite to the measurement of right and wrong under biblical societies like the United States, biblical-based cultures. And it, it took me years to discover that, but little things, like going to a supermarket and somebody tells you, good morning, how can I help you? Without wanting anything from you. That is biblical. Most Americans are living in biblical values. Even atheists are in li- living and enjoying biblical values. And I see it in everything. Because I come from a society that's totally opposite to Western biblical values. So bringing together such opposite values to live under one roof is eventually going to cause a crash. And I just hope that America does not fall into the experience of Egypt. 1,400 years ago, Egypt was a Christian nation. It welcomed uh, the immigration of a lot of people from Arabia, and they brought us Islam, and Egypt became a majority Muslim country that killing Christians until today. So I want to give you a quote by Teddy Roosevelt, who predicted that if we do not fight, we will lose to Islam the same way the people of the book in the Middle East lost to Islam in the 7th century. He said the following, Christianity is not the creed of Asia and Africa at this moment solely because the 7th century Christians of Asia and Africa had trained themselves not to fight, whereas the Muslims were trained to fight. If you want to preserve biblical values, you have to fight for them, and I, I'm sad to say that. You have to strengthen your biblical values to preserve them, because it is a pleasure to live under biblical values. And I know that from experience.
The Christians and Jews of the Middle East did not fight. And where are they today? They are a minority that you can hardly see anywhere. Jews were completely expelled from all Muslim countries or killed. And today, same thing is happening to Christianity. They're totally living under a death threat. And Western media doesn't care, frankly, doesn't even talk about it enough. So the first rebellion, a lot of people talk about the culture clash, the culture clash between uh, Christianity you know, Christian Western values and Islamic Middle East values. And they think it's a clash between Europe and the Middle East. But no, the first culture clash really happened inside the Middle East. Why? Because Christianity came out of the Middle East. Where did Jew Judaism? Jews were in Egypt. Christianity was in Jerusalem. That's part of the Middle East, just a few kilometers south of Jerusalem, about a two-hour, two-three-hour drive down to Mecca is where Islam happened. In the 7th century, 600 years after Christ, the whole Middle East was either Christian or Jewish, except Arabia. But Christians started penetrating Arabia, and there were whole towns full of Jewish tribes. Christianity, the gospel, was coming to Arabia. And Muhammad felt, felt that it's about to come. And he knew that they have values that are totally opposite to Arabian values. He didn't want to lose the power of Mecca. Mecca was a, a city that had the Kaaba at that time. This was pagan holy place where 360 gods were being uh, worshipped. And Muhammad's father was used to be the head of that tribe. And people from all over Arabia used to come to Mecca to pilgrim. And that's how the city prospered. And if his people were going to all convert to the gospel or Christianity or Judaism, then it was going to be Jerusalem, the capital where everybody was going to go do pilgrimage. And Mecca was going to be nothing. He had to do something. He didn't want to change his values. He didn't want to change his culture. And he wanted to keep Arabian Peninsula values intact. He didn't like the Ten Commandments. And he created a movement, a rebellion against the Bible. 600 years after Christ, he brought back stoning of women. He brought back polygamy. Islam did not honor one man, one woman anymore. It did not honor don't kill or steal. Lying was permitted. And until today, Sharia law allows lying. And it's not just allows lying. 
It is an obligation. And I studied Sharia law, and even I was a Muslim, my jaw dropped when I read that lying and slander and exaggeration is an obligation if it's for the benefit of Islam. And all of a sudden I said, oh my God, these are totally opposite values to live under. Islam violated all the Ten Commandments and made it, and totally made, discredited the Bible, wanted to discredit and fight the Bible at every, every step of the way. Before Muhammad died, he said, no Jew or Christian will be in Arabia. And before he died, that was true. They all were expelled or beheaded. Muhammad ordered beheading and took the women as slaves, as sexual slaves. He, had, he picked the first sexual slave of the Jewish tribe that he beheaded. These are all documented, not in my book, and not in the enemies of Islam's books, in Islamic books. Islamic books are proud to teach that Muhammad beheaded all the, all the Jewish tribes and are proud to advocate that taking their women as slaves is legitimate for a Muslim jihadi. If you don't be, it is unbelievable. What I'm saying to you today to the Western mind is unbelievable. But go Google sexual slavery and Islam and you'll see the laws, Islamic laws about it. Jihad, you'll see all the laws from Islamic books. And that's what we have to talk about. Not because I hate Muslim people. We don't hate Muslim people. But we certainly have a right to criticize an ideology that calls itself religion. So no religion or ideology in a free society should be immune from criticism. I lived in a society that made a religion immune from criticism, and that society cursed Jews and Christians in every Friday prayer. So cursing and criticizing was only allowed to Muslims, but not for Christians. Christians, I remember, used to be scared to walk in front of a mosque. Scared to walk in front of a mosque after the Friday prayers. Why? Because the preacher, and this is how... This, I'll just go on YouTube and put Islamic preaching of hate and jihad and violence. And you'll see a lot, a lot. I grew up on it. This is what I grew up on. The preacher in the mosque, of course, all of them are men. Women don't go to mosque. They're at home. And we used to watch it on, listen to the radio or watch TV. And this is the sermon. May God destroy the Jews and the, and the infidels and the Christians and the Jews, the enemies of Allah. 
They are the enemies of our Allah. And we are Muslims and we are going to kill the enemies of our Allah in order to go to heaven. We are, we are not to befriend them. We are not to, we are not to, this is how, and sometimes you used to get a, a sword. Go do jihad and kill them. And Christians used to be scared to walk in front of the church because they're all popped up. They wanted to kill them. And they made a statistic. When does the most of the attacks on Christians in Egypt, what day of the week? It's Friday, which is the holy day of Islam. You see, Christians have Sunday, Jews have Saturday, Muslims have Friday. And it was always afternoon. Why in the afternoon? Because at noontime is when the mosque, mosques leave. And the attacks on their homes start on Friday. That's the holy day. So when you think that all religions are equal, it's not true. It is not true. And Islam calls itself an Abrahamic religion. Well, what kind of Abrahamic religion commands its followers to kill the children of Abraham, the Jews, and Christians? And it calls itself, we're just an Abrahamic religion. We have the same God. That's what they tell us. And that is part of the, of the lying for the sake of Islam. So there, there was the original culture clash between Islam and the Bible happened inside the Middle East before it became between Europe and the Middle East because Christianity moved to Europe then. It found a place in Europe. And Christians of the Middle East were expelled or killed. So the original culture clash was from within, from within the Middle East. Islam rejected the Bible. So Islam really was a, created as a rebellion against the Bible because it didn't want to follow biblical values. For instance, I'll give you an example of the differences in values, other than killing and lying. We're all sinners. When I heard my pastor say that for the first time when I came, I mean, I, I had no idea anything about Christianity, nothing. And when I first went to a church and I heard the statement, we're all sinners, I was like, wow. That is a revolutionary idea. And Christians take it for granted because we're all sinners. That's normal. We all know that, but I didn't know it because under my original religion, they are all sinners. We are Muslims. We are innocent. And they are guilty. And you know how they tried to convince us with that? They said, open their Bible. They admit they are sinners in it. So what you are, to, to admit you're a sinner 
in Christianity is regarded as the first step for redemption, releasing your guilt, being a better person. Wow. Do you see how Muslims are full of guilt? The most dangerous people on earth are the people who don't have a release of their guilt. They are completely full of guilt. Why? Because the religion does not allow them to express guilt. They are all sinners. Guess what Muhammad told Muslims about sin? Conceal your sin, not confess your sin. That's another thing I heard from a pastor. I'm like, wow, confess your sin? Are you sure you're not going to behead me or stone me if I confess my sin? Are you sure? It took me a long time to be able to relax and shed my guilt because I was in a society where I had to conceal my sin because that is what Islam commands. Under Islam also, there is another concept about sin, which is called immunity from sin. See, Jesus never committed sin. Muhammad did every sin you can think of. He killed with his own hands. He commended the killing of anyone who criticized him. He lied. He deceived. He stole the property of all the the tribes that he expelled out of Arabia. There are some poets who wrote poetry criticizing and ridiculing Muhammad. He commanded a hit to bring the heads of these poets. And one of them was a woman, and she was breastfeeding her baby. These are all from Islamic sources. She was breastfeeding her baby, and they behead, got, got her head to Muhammad. So this is the kind of Muslim of leader or prophet that we were worshiping. And when I was a Muslim, I never knew that this was evil. And that's the sad part. I used to hear Muslim preachers curse Jews and command, go kill them. And it never occurred to me that this is unholy. And that tells us that there is a fine line between good and evil. And depending on how we were growing up, in what kind of society, what we were taught from childhood, is what determines what we take as good and as evil. Evil can come to us in the form of good and we can accept it. And that's what I was. So Muhammad created a concept, Muslims created a concept called the Isma Masum in Arabic. That concept is called immunity from sin. And that was given to Muhammad. Muhammad, if anybody talks about him marrying a girl who was six, consummating the marriage at age nine, having 11 wives at the same time, and even though he only allowed a Muslim man up to four, but he has an exception. To him, everything was an exception. 
He had more than anyone else. He stole, he killed. So Muslims couldn't hide that. It was known to everybody in Arabia. And he was criticized for it. He was criticized after killing, beheading, actually, over six, over 45, uh, how many? Over almost 900 Jews, not 4,500. Over almost 900 Jewish tribes, men, males. So the, he created a concept of masum. I am immune to sin. So he committed sin, but he's immune. Not only him, but the people around him were immune from sin. All the big shots. So the Khomeinis and the sheikhs and the mosques, are all, they think they're all immune from sin. And they are, today they are advocating that. So totally different. Under Islam, under Christianity, life is sacred. Under Islam, death is worship. If you really love your Allah, you have to die for him. I was trained from childhood that I have to die for Allah, like my father died for Allah. But in Christianity, God came down to save us. He came to die for us. That was a revolution. I, I wept for a whole week over this. I wept every time I saw the uh, passion of the of Christ. And I was like, oh my God, the God dies for me? I am nothing. I'm not worth it. Because my God, my previous God, wanted me to die for him. And actually, the only way for a Muslim to go to heaven is to go die during the killing of Allah's enemies. Who are Allah's enemies? Jews, Christians, pagans. And that's why they're flying airplanes into your buildings. That's why they are going stabbing. That's why they're, they're, they're putting themselves in trucks and going into markets and killing as many people as you can. That's why they're going today to a Christian celebration of Easter, the Coptic Christian Easter. And they are killing them. They really believe they are doing their God's bids. They really believing they are doing good. And if you put them on, uh, and this is proven on a, uh, you know, when they do polygraph tests, Muslims are very sincere. I'm doing it because Allah told me so. They pass the test. There's no, no feeling of guilt whatsoever. So this is what, what the, the opposite values I'm talking about. I have a list in my books of more than six, I mean, uh, more than 50, and now it, I've increased it to 60 or 70 differences. Every week I discover a new difference. Everything is opposite. And this is what I want to leave you with. Everything that God told us in the Bible that he loves and wants us to be, Islam has set out to destroy. And now we're seeing 
Some people are saying, let's merge Islam and Christianity. They're all, a bi- you know, a biblical religion. They are the same. They are not the same. Islam does not want to coexist. Islam wants to replace. And I don't want to leave you on a depressing. I know, and I am sure, that Jesus has a surprise for the immigrants who are coming here. I know they are all going to end up like me. They are going to be like me. I know that what they think they are sending them here to Islamize us, I know. But for us to make them become like me, we, they have to see what I saw in America. They have to see you. You are the people who made me who I am. It's pastors like Pastor Rob, who made me who I am today. So please, hold on to your Bibles, hold on to your values. Never, ever buy the evil camouflaged as good. Thank you so much. <laughs> Let me move this out of the way. Uh, James, why don't you come up and grab a microphone? One of the ones that are hooked in. Nani, I'm going to have you come up in just a little bit. We'll get you out of here on time by 830. Let me uh, read this to you. This is a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of the foes. There is his commission, his work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you are doing... Who would ever have been spared? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Nani, you had made a comment on a Sunday service. Maybe you can turn that on because uh, you'll get a chance to respond. You made a comment on a Sunday service about the characters, caricatures that were done in um, cartoons in Europe and where Christ defends us in Islam, it's the responsibility of the Muslim to defend Allah. We have to defend Allah's reputation. We have to defend Muhammad's reputation by killing anyone who uh, mocks them or draws draws a cartoon. Or uh, it's blasphemy uh, is a law in Islam. You blaspheme. Islam or Muhammad or Allah, and the penalty is death even if you repent. So this is the contrast. Now, my point to all of you is we're raised with this concept of tolerance. It's a good term. But is tolerance, are, is, is the truth tolerant of a lie, and is a lie tolerant of the truth? Example, 2 plus 2 is 4, Yes. What if I feel like it should be three? What will I get on the exam? Uh, Hello. (laughs) 
You're afraid to answer that. You'll get an F. There's a truth. We contend for that. We don't like conflict. Nobody does. I get that. We want it to be roses and lilies. But we're contending for the hearts and minds of people. And, and to be silent in the face of evil is to be complicit with evil itself. And this is a challenge to your generation. You will be run over. Secular humanism is a religion disguised as a political process. Islam is a political process dis, dis, uh, dis, uh, disguised as a religion. And the two come together. And in the absence of the strength of our belief, we'll be mowed over. We must contend for truth. And people are not the enemy, they're the opportunity. But you must speak. If you remain silent, the scripture says, how will they know unless someone tells them? And if you don't know what you believe, in the vacuum you create, they are more than willing to fill that. With me tonight is James Crawford. He's one of our pastors in training. He also happens to be my son-in-law. I met him long before my daughter's head turned towards him and his turned towards my daughter. He was sitting right there on a Wednesday night. And I was getting pretty heavy politically. And if you've ever sat through one of my sermons, you, you struggle with it, especially if you're a millennial, wondering why is this pastor so political? And as he sat through that, I was thinking, well, I'm going to preach this church down to a manageable size. I'm going to lose another one. But I watched as he engaged. And he had questions afterwards. And he was a young man that had gone through Oaks Christian School, right? And he had been raised in a Christian home with a very godly mother. He'd gone through a struggle with his dad. His biological father left and uh, raised with a stepdad. And uh, he had all the struggles that anyone would have losing their father at an early age. And trying to comprehend and grasp Christianity with a loving father in the absence of his own was a difficulty. And as he kind of just floated through Christianity at Oaks Christian and saw the cultural aspect of, of Christendom and, and took for granted all these biblical values that Nani speaks of, he went away to school and while he was there, the Lord got a hold of his heart. And he wanted to make a radical difference. Tell everyone about that transition, what happened when he went to Boise State, and all the things that transpired and how he came to the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you mind if I give a little bit of background? Yeah, do it. Just as far as, um, so obviously, as he said, uh, I grew up going to high school at Oaks Christian here, a local kid. Um, I was kind of indifferent to religion, to be honest. My relationship with the Lord was through my mother. Um, we, we prayed every day together, read the Bible together. It was something that was just inundated in my culture. It was just something I grew up with. Um, I understand the relationship with the Lord, but my personal relationship wasn't there. Um, to give a little bit of background, we grew up in three major churches as I was growing up, and we had three major scandals with all the head pastors. I'm and working so that the fourth one won't happen. <laughs> I'm doing my best. Not, not here. Not here. Um, I, was, I was indifferent. Um, and... and and it, it was it was great, but it was it was it wasn't it was legalism. It was it was God is good all the time. And, it, and even though that is true, but that was a Sunday morning, and you put on your best and brightest. And that, as far as my relationship went, um, I spiraled in high school. Um, the Lord put on my heart to share about my brothers in high school, my stepbrothers. Um, just real briefly, um, I had three stepbrothers as. Rob said I, I didn't have a dad, and I was the only child till I was about nine. Um, now I'm one of nine between blended families. Um, but immediately, everything I wanted as a kid was to have a brother. And when my when my parents got remarried when I was nine, I had three. 
and I looked up to them. Um, through the course of me being in high school, the oldest one was in the military. He was in the Army. He almost beat someone to death um, after his uh, CO raped his girlfriend. He was angry at God, and I understood why. My second brother was transgender, and he attempted suicide when I was in high school. And the pivotal moment of when he attempted suicide was when his best friend in the entire world who professed Christianity called him an abomination. And my third brother, in the midst of his despair, cried out to the Lord right before he also attempted suicide, and he had no response. Where was the Lord in that? As I questioned myself when I was 15, 16 years old, and I was, I was still doing the routine, I was still going to the church, but I didn't care. I was numb. And I left for college, and I had the opportunity to um, stay here and pursue firefighting here or go to college, and I had the opportunity to play football in Boise, and I, I went for it. So I'm getting out of here. I didn't want this life anymore. And I fell off for a year and a half. I knew that the Lord was there. I believed in God, but I didn't care about Christianity because organized religion was worthless to me. I got invited to go to a basement. It sounds weird. <laughs> they do things funny. I, I, had, I had, yeah, it's a little backward. Um, but it was uh, one of my good friends um, at the time. Uh, she invited me to a, a church that met in a basement. It was maybe 20 people. <clears throat> I had a pastor call me out. He didn't know me. He said, you have a choice. And this, at this point I was sleeping with my girlfriend. I was drinking heavily. I was, I was inundated. You don't want to tell that to your father. Okay. (laughs) I'm messing up. He knows. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he said, you have two choices and that's it. One's going to lead to life and life more abundant. And one is going to lead to your death. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. It was a gospel presented to me in the most genuine way I've ever experienced thus far. It was, it was personal. It was passionate. And it was a man who was willing to endeavor with me and walk me through it. Um, and, and I gave my life to the Lord. Uh, I haven't I haven't been the same since, but through that process, I ended up um, felt, feeling the call to ministry. And I was on the football team. I was at the height of um, pursuing my, my football career, and the Lord told me to leave and pursue ministry, and I did. And once that position of being a football player was gone, so was my relationship with that pastor. And again, that deep-rooted scar in me that I got from childhood, from not having a father, was once again opened. I just wanted a dad. And once again, the Lord, and, and I see this now, the Lord was trying to show me that no pastor is going to be your savior. I'm your savior. But again, I spiraled. But the Lord surrounded me with people that, that were going to love me and encourage me. And so I, I proceeded to, to endeavor, but again, I was, I was jaded by uh, Christianity 
and I threw myself into a relationship and, um, I still had, I still had a relationship with the Lord, but I was in a bad relationship with a girl, same old song and dance. You've heard it before. <laughs> and, um, as Rob likes to call it, the Lord gave me a BSD degree <laughs> backside of the desert. And, uh, the Lord sent me to North Dakota, um, for over a year and a half. Wow. <laughs> Literal desert. It was hell. Um, frozen, frozen, desert. frozen hell. Um, I saw a dog stuck to a fire hydrant. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. We, the year that I was there, we set the record for the most consecutive days under zero, which was 48, I think. Um, so yeah, that was, that was fun, but I got to experience the depravity of man. Um, there was no God up there. There was money, there was greed, there was power and there was emptiness and my heart broke for them in the midst of that. And then he did another thing and he called me to Nashville after that. After I was done, I paid off my student loans. I made a, a chunk of change and I had the opportunity to go down to Nashville and not work for um, about six months because I could just live off my, my, my savings and figure out what was next. And, and I had a pastor during that time walk alongside me, come alongside me and say, James love you and I want to let you know that the Lord is proud of you and I broke because those are words that I was looking to hear for so long so long and and, and as I and as I speak to you guys I, I want to encourage you not not only the millennials to, to, to reach out and, and, and search for something genuine but for the older crowd in the room if you don't have a Timothy that you're pouring yourself into why not because we need you just as much as you need us because we're the next generation and we're drowning right now. And so we need a gospel that is genuine and we need a gospel that has servants willing to endeavor with us. I know I went a little long, sorry. No, no, you're doing fine. We're just going to leave at midnight. (laughs) (laughs) So... In any case, I had a pastor um, encourage me to rekindle that desire to pursue ministry, um, and it led me to to, to research different uh, seminaries. But ultimately, I wanted to go back home before I started that progress, and I met Rob. <laughs> and, wah, wah. Yeah, um, but we had that night, and we had that conversation, and then he endeavored to meet with me after. And, you know, I, I, I asked him, you know, why not? Why can't I go to seminary? And, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of different um, feelings about whether or not, you know, seminary is the right thing right away. And I think that's an individual response, an individual situation. For me, I needed to comprehend ministry hands-on. I'm a little bit rough around the edges and school is not my best forte, but I'm here now and I'm learning to do ministry rough and tumble. (laughs) And uh, it's going okay. Amen. <laughs> doing great. Pretty cool, huh? So it's eight twenty-eight. Uh, we finish at eight thirty, but I'm gonna. We got some questions up here that you can text. I've already gotten three of them. Um, they're all for you, Nani. So I'm gonna ask you some of the questions, and if you have any for James as well. Um, we'll do our best to answer them. And 
we don't want to go too long tonight. So what we'll do is, is if we have more questions and we have time, Nani's going to remain here to answer those questions, and James as will as well, and I'll be here too. Um, you can go out and get a bite to eat. One of the things I'd share with you is Nani brought your you brought your book, didn't you? Yeah. Is it on? Is your thing on? Yeah, I brought, I brought uh, books, and I know that uh, young people like CDs, so I'm, I'm donating. No, to... no, 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 no. We, we are going to donate tonight 10 books. It's okay. not coming out of your pocket. Oh, okay. We're going to donate 10 books. Tony took care of it. And uh, so 10 really needy college students that promise you'll read the book. Or and circulate it after and that. And circulate it when you're finished. You may have it, but you have to prove to us. <laughs> All right, let's go through some questions here. Um, uh, Nani, does the Newbury Park Islamic Center support these Islamic ideologies discussed tonight? And if so, why do a lot of millennials and liberals support them so much? That's an excellent question. Because Would you say it wasn't if it wasn't an excellent question? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> this is the dilemma of Islam. 64% of the Quran are commandments to kill non-Muslims, to humiliate them, to not talk to them. And you can just read the Quran yourself. And this is the dilemma of every Muslim. I could not reconcile being a Muslim and being a good American and a loyal American. I could not. Some Muslims are fooling themselves and they think they can do that. And some Muslims have an agenda, and they are engaging in deception. I'm not sure about this particular mosque, but that's what the... Uh... I'll, I'll elaborate in a minute on that mosque. I've had some personal experience with them, and I'll share with you tonight. I want to share with you, uh, James talked about his transgender brother. In our church, we you have the term LGBTQ, right? Well, in our church, we have... Uh, representation of LBGTQ uh, in our church. My sister is a lesbian. Um, and, and I've challenged uh, the staff in this concept, and, and we haven't gone forward with it, but I want us to think outside the box. You know, where we have embraced the sexual revolution, and, uh, and, and you know, everyone's divorced, and, and every family, uh, every person in the room has been affected by divorce in some capacity. Every family and every person in the room has been affected by abortion in some capacity. We're a generation that has, is a fatherless generation. There is all kinds of bends and, and, and some struggles, um, pastor included. And with that being said, uh, God is in the process of healing, and God catches his fish before he cleans them, right? And, and my heart is, everything about my life when I came to the Lord is submitted to him, and he's in the process. There's, there's justification, just as if I never sinned. Sanctification is being set apart. He does that at, on his timing, his way. But when I preach on a Sunday, I do my best to think that my sister's in the front row. I do my best to be mindful of the members of our congregation that are of the LGBTQ community, not to compromise the gospel, but to be mindful that we speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. Think about this outside the box a little bit. We haven't gone there yet. I'm processing it. Some of you are going to quit the church when I tell you this, but hang in there. Think about this. In every lesbian or gay relationship, you have a butch and a femme. 
a male and a female in a sense. Almost everyone, not, not all of them, but in, in most of them. What if, as a church, we took biblical principles with, with same-sex couples and started to teach them biblical principles because the truth doesn't return void, the word doesn't return void. You get an opportunity to minister to them, you bring them into the church, you start, boy, boy that would be outside the box, wouldn't it? A lot of you are looking at me like, I'm from Mars. <laughs> but that's the idea, is that you want to speak the truth in love. You don't compromise the truth, but you have to figure out ways to minister. And when Nani was talking about the Islamic Center, I went there. I was invited by the mayor of our city. My back hurts. Sorry, I have to stand. I was invited by the mayor of our city, Claudia Bilde La Pena, who is ideologically very opposed to me. She's left, I'm right. Yeah, left, right. And, and she said, Rob, would you come to, to um, uh, the the rally that we're doing at the Islamic Center. And it was when the immigration, uh, the, the executive order went through and everybody and their grandmother came out, close to a thousand people. And I'm, I've, I've run for a partisan seat. They know I'm Republican, they know I'm conservative. And I'm walking in basically to a, a realm of people that look at me sideways, like what the heck are you doing here? And when she invited me, I said, Claudia, I'm not gonna have a friend there. You're gonna have to stay by my side. She said, I promise I will. And I've built a relationship with her and she has a love for me and I have a love for her. I showed up there on a Sunday after our second service. I got across the street on Borchard. I'm looking at all these signs. And I mean, they're signs that are just like opposite of what I believe, many of them. And I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. And I actually called my wife. I said, I'm just calling to say goodbye. I love you. <laughs> and I said, God, would you send me a friend? Would you send me a friend? And, and uh, I turned to my right, and there's a man in complete Muslim garb. And I said, hey, I'm Rob McCoy. He says, I'm Samir. I said, Samir, nice to meet you. And, he said, thank you for coming out and supporting us today. And I said, well, I'm glad to be here. And, uh, and he's, he, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an engineer at uh, Skyworks. I said, do you know Dr. Bob Lee? He goes, yeah, I've heard of him. I said, he's retired. He goes to our church. Oh, you're a church goer. I said, yes, I'm a pastor. He goes, well, pastor, well, thank you for coming out today. I said, my pleasure. And, and I said, you know, I, I, I don't know anyone here. He goes, let me take you on a tour. I walk through the Islamic Center. People are looking at me like, why are you here kind of thing. And I'm, I'm getting the vibe. And, um, and there was a man that day who put a front page article, his name's John Cummings. He actually wrote a letter to the editor on my behalf. And John is, John is part of a group called Indivisible Conejo where he's monitoring uh, what he considers right-wing evangelical fundamentalist uh, politicians and he's monitoring them. And, and John had come out in this article and they asked the quote on me and I said, you know, I, I'm not threatened. I don't think it's nefarious. And I would love to have a conversation, a debate and a forum with John Cummings about the separation of church and state and, and founders principles. I'd love to do that. And that was what I was quoting. It was a really good article in the star. And I had never met John Cummings before. And I get there and I get a tour of the facility. And then Claudia sees me. She runs up. Oh, Rob, I'm so happy you're here. I say, oh, it's just good to be here. And, um, and she says, Rob, I want you to meet somebody. And I said, okay. And she, she says, Rob, this is John Cummings. John Cummings, this is Rob McCoy. He looks at me like a deer caught in headlights. And I said, John, I'm here today, so it'd be easier to monitor me. And, uh, <laughs> and John was laughing. I gave him a big hug, and he was kind of uncomfortable with it, but he was laughing. And, and he is, I, I think he's, he's gay. Um, it's my assumption. And, and, and he was standing for LGBTQ rights, and, and he was very militant about that in his, in his conversation. But what was interesting is Samir, uh, Claudia puts a name tag on him. He says, Rob McCoy. He goes, you're Rob McCoy? Like, why are you here? And I go, you know, Samir, I hope I'm not who you thought I was because you're certainly not who I thought you were. He said, no, you are. He said, I want you to meet my wife. He introduced me to his wife. And I, I understand Muslim custom. She didn't extend her hand, so I didn't shake it because 
whatever impurity or what was going on. But I started to build relationship, and I went where, you know, a missionary goes where he's not loved but deeply needed and leaves when he's loved and no longer needed. I would challenge you to step outside your comfort zone and go into those areas and blow people's minds with the love of Christ. I didn't go there to win arguments. I went there to love on people. And God does that as he transforms you. So a uh, couple other questions. Sorry about the long answer. And if you're hungry and you want to leave, go ahead. Um, this is for you, Nani. It seems like all of them are. Should we fear Muslims established in our community? Uh, no, I don't. I'm not speaking about people. The problem is the culture clash is going to come sooner or later. Not from one person. It's the ideology. The ideology is totally anti-biblical. So if you meet my family in Egypt, my mother is still alive. She's over 90 now. And my siblings, they're some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. And they don't even practice Islam. To them, Islam is like in my genes. Yeah, and they don't talk to me anymore. They cut the relationship with me because I became Christian. We we have another question here. It says, uh, Nani, would you explain the Islamic worldview of Dar al-Harb and Dar al-Islam and where we fit in the West? Well, Islam divided the world into... House of Islam, Dar al-Islam, and House of War, Dar al-Harb, and which is any non-Muslim country. The way Islam looks at the world is like us against them, and we have to fight them. And jihad, this is the definition of jihad uh, in their books. That, that's not my view. It's a permanent war institution against Jews, Christians, and pagans. So it's a permanent war institution. Any Muslim leader who makes peace permanently with non-Muslim countries will be assassinated, according to Islamic law. And that's why Anwar Sadat was assassinated, because he made peace, signed peace treaty, and he meant it with Israel. So and he, learned that, Har- he learned that in a Christian home in America. The story is amazing about yeah. Anwar al-Sadat. Yeah. Fascinating story. Yeah, he, 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 you know, so it is actually, if any Muslim leader befriends an American leader or a British or a European leader, they attack him so much as a puppet of the West. The worst, the worst thing a Muslim leader can do is be a puppet of the West. And, and Islam is such a, uh, it's a culture that's all based on shaming and, you know, ridiculing and embarrassing. That is, it's very similar to, to radical left. The radical left is all about shaming, ridiculing, calling names. You're a racist, you're a bigot, you're an Islamophobe. And unfortunately, there is a lot of similarity here. When, when uh, I ran for office and from the pulpit, I'm very pro-life. I'm outspoken in my pro-life position. And when the firebombing occurred at the Planned Parenthood, uh, the editorial in the acorn is they blamed me for the firebombing as though I had incited it in the congregation. They knew the second day that it was a disgruntled boyfriend of an employee. But they waited over 30 days before they reported that. And yet nobody apologized in the paper for that. They accused. And that's, that's the idea. I to shut not, you down. To, to shut you down and to silence you and to shame you. 
Christians need to get a backbone. One of the things that, that I really wanted to do tonight by bringing James forward is this is a man that God has taken from a background of pain who has seen the grace and the mercy of God and the restoration of his heart, who is now being empowered to stand for Christ. And, and if you're not willing to stand for something, you'll fall for everything. And, and this, is, this is the example I wanted to put forward to you young folks. I want you to see this. I want you to get a backbone. You know, to say you're about the gospel but not engage in the culture, your gospel's pretty weak. The gospel's transformative. That means you step into the midst of it as Jesus contended for truth even when his disciples abandoned him. Even when 20% of the church of Germany were the professing church and stood. Martin Niemöller was put in prison. He survived. He was able to tell the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. These are amazing men and women of God that made a stand. And this is the challenge to you. Between point A, which is birth, and point B, which is death, you're given a name. Ecclesiastes 7.1 says a good name is like a precious fragrance, but better is a day of a man's death than the day of his birth. Your name will resonate by your capacity to have engaged the culture and served. And that's what God will do. Uh, time for one more question. Looks like I just got buzzed because my butt vibrated. <laughs> that was very exciting. For James, uh, what would you say to someone who went through similar things that you and your brothers went through? It's for you. No, no, I realize I'm, I'm trying to. <laughs> uh, it's not mine, it's yours. Yeah, no, 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 no. All right. Um, well, <laughs> I, I, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't. Um, none of my brothers are walking with the Lord still. Um, they grew up in a Christian home, but they themselves went through a pretty harsh divorce. Um, with their parents and uh, I pray for them often and um, it, it, it kind of breaks my heart because my brother uh, the second one who was transgender he uh, completely dismissed the family and I haven't seen him in about nine years and I pray for him often um, and, and it's, it's in those situations that, that you, you find yourself broken for this world and, and in the midst of um, things that happen like that you're, my first response anyways is anger um, but but what the Lord wants us to do is is to not delve that anger into someone else or something else and and to react to it, but to throw everything you have on the Lord. Again and again, when I find myself in the midst of being angry about the circumstances in which I encounter, I'm brought back to David and his lamenting to the Lord. Read through Psalms. Again and again and again, he lays it all out on the line before the Lord. Come to the Lord first and foremost, and he will give you rest. He will lie you down by green pastures. So. There you, go. you know, uh, for sake of time, great answer. I, I'm, I'm going to close with this, this last uh, thought. Since I didn't get any questions, I'm just going to steal it. Um, Abraham Lincoln, when he would be attacked, he would write voluminous, you know, he'd write letters. And they have volumes of these letters that he wrote. And he never signed them and he never mailed them. And when they found those after he died and they contrasted with the letters that he did sign and he did mail, the ones that he didn't mail were all angry. And he would pour out his frustrations, grievances, and they'd sit on them. And he'd wait until the peace of the Lord came upon him. He'd write another letter, and that's the one he'd send. 
and you contrast the letters, and it's a fascinating study if you ever want to take time to do that. I want to share a story about my sister. Uh, my sister Gretchen, I, I'm the youngest of four, and my brother's the oldest, my sister Nancy and my sister Gretchen. There's a six-year difference between the two of us. And uh, my sister Gretchen is, is a left-leaning liberal lesbian. And she had asked that I'd officiate her wedding. It was She was giving me a gift. She wanted me to be blessed. She, she knew that I'd just been ordained. She wanted me to officiate. And I said, Gretchen, I can't do it. It's against my ecclesiastical orders. I don't believe in it. I can't do it. And she was livid. She wouldn't talk to me. Angry, very angry. And it, it, it was a riff in our relationship. And I didn't like it. I didn't want it. And trust me, I would like to have put truth aside and just hug my sister. But I, I, I want to see her in heaven. And I believe in these truths. And we're all bent. We're all struggling. We all have our issues. And, and so my mom had lung cancer, 2010. She went in for surgery in her 80s, and the, the surgery went wrong, and her lungs started to collapse. And so the kids had to gather in Coronado to, to decide what to do with my mom because she'd have to go on hospice. And my sister and I hadn't talked in a while. It was pretty intense. And I knew this meeting was going to be awful. And my sister was upset because... I was involved in, in the church. I was involved in so many things, and I wasn't there while my mom was struggling. My sister was the one who went all out to help her. And my, my mom had put my sister Gretchen in charge of her financial affairs, my sister Nancy in charge of her health directives, and my brother and I were kind of left out because my brother lived in Redlands, and I was here, and my two sisters lived down there. So we gather, and before we go to the house for this inevitable meeting, my brother and I go visit my dad who's in a rest home with Alzheimer's. My dad died last year. Fifteen years he struggled with Alzheimer's went to visit him. My brother, who's the oldest, really needed the blessing of the oldest from his father. And so every time you go with my brother, whoever you were, if you traveled to go visit my dad with my brother, my brother would do this thing every time. It was so annoying. He'd pull a chair up right in front of my father's face. My dad didn't speak. He... My brother would pull a chair up, and I'm sitting next to my dad in a love seat like this, holding his hand. Give me your hand. Come on down. Your family now. And I'd be holding his hand like this, and my brother gets in front of my dad, and he says, Dad, I'm Lauren. Can you say Lauren? Dad, can you say my name? Can you say Lauren? I'm your oldest son, Lauren. Can you say Lauren? So annoying. I'm, I'm sitting there holding my dad's hand. I'm just waiting for the stupidity to end. It's annoying my father, I can tell. And while he's doing it, my dad squeezes my hand. I look at my dad. My brother's still going, I'm Lauren, I'm Lauren. My dad squeezes again. Lauren doesn't get what he wants from my dad. I go and I hug my dad's neck, and he smelled so good because he just had a bath, and, and he, they shaved him, and I gave him a hug. He had the most beautiful hands. He was a woodworker, and I said goodbye to him. My brother and I got in the car, and we came back for the inevitable meeting. We sit down, and it just so happened that my three siblings are here, and I'm on the other side of the table, and my sister Nancy's here, my brother's here, and my sister Gretchen's across from me. And it goes from zero to angry, and Gretchen just starts unleashing on me. You, you don't love me. You don't love our family. You don't love mom. You don't love dad. And she's just, she's just unleashing on me. And, and my other siblings are scooting away from the nuclear explosion. And I say, Gretchen, dad, talk to me today. In the midst of her rant ranting, I go, dad, talk to me today. And it flusters her. She goes, he doesn't talk. And Lauren goes, I was there. He didn't say anything. I said, he did. You weren't listening. And Gretchen says, what did he say? Because she loves dad. What did he say? I said, you know when Lauren does that mantra? I'm Lauren. Can you say Lauren? Both my sisters are like, yeah. 
I said, well, he was doing it again today, and I was holding his hand. And he squeezed it not once but twice while Lauren was doing that. And this is what he said to us without words, Gretch. He said, Rob, Lauren wants something from me that I can no longer give, and he's missing the things I can give, a hand to hold, a neck to hug, and a cheek to kiss. I said, Gretch, there are things that I'll never be able to give you, and there's things you'll never be able to give me. But let's not miss the things we can give each other. I've never missed your birthday. You know I love you. She started weeping. Healing happened right there at the table. She's my strongest advocate, and she's my dearest friend, and, and she has professed a faith in Christ. Now God catches them before he cleans them. And a lot of you are absolutely filthy, just like me. But God's in the business of healing. But we speak the truth in love. And that means that you can't be offended. You have to choose to be offended. It's to man's benefit to overlook an offense. I could have said, don't you talk to me that way. You don't understand. <laughs> James is here because he loves. Nani's here because she loves. And who do they love? Their enemies. And they speak the truth in love. And they stand. Get a backbone. Let the Lord use you. And may God bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, thank you for this evening and thank you for these, these folks. Bless them and empower them by your spirit. Give them a backbone to stand and to speak the truth in love. Bless the food and thank you for the hands that prepared and served it. And thank you for this night. Thank you for Nani, protector, Lord. Thank you for blessing our life with her. What a gift she is to the body of Christ. Thank you for James, this wonderful work you're doing in his life. And Lord, thank you for this picture in front of me of these lives that are ready to make a profound difference in their culture. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week in the Lord.